Why is our economy constructed to grow into infinity even though such growth threatens ecological limits? How can a steady-state economic model realistically be implemented without undermining the welfare of society members? Why do current laws seem to get in the way of sharing and implementing sustainable practices, and how can they be changed? Is an economy rooted in sharing viable? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we look to embark on an investigation of the flaws in the current unsustainable economic paradigm by examining two more humane strategies. Our guests are James Magnus Johnston and Janelle Orsi. On today's program, Changing the Way Money Works, the Steady State Economy and Sharing Law. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 10th, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, Global Research. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. India, South Africa, and Brazil have decided not to go along with a multiple currency arrangement, which would have allowed for the development of bilateral trade and investment activities between BRICS countries operating outside the realm of dollar-denominated credit. In fact, they did not have the choice of making this decision in view of the strict loan conditionalities imposed by the IMF. Heavily indebted under the brunt of their external creditors, all three countries are faithful pupils of the IMF World Bank. The central bank of these countries is controlled by Wall Street and the IMF. For them to enter into a non-dollar or an anti-dollar development banking arrangement with multiple currencies would have required prior approval of the IMF. That's from the article, Bricks and the Fiction of De-Dollarization, by Professor Michel Chosodovsky, posted April 8th. The Times of London reported last month, the chief of the Fukushima nuclear power station has admitted that the technology needed to decommission three melted-down reactors does not exist, and he has no idea how it will be developed. In a stark reminder of the challenge facing the Japanese authorities, Akira Ono conceded that the stated goal of decommissioning the plant by 2051 may be impossible without a giant technological leap. Quote, there are so many uncertainties involved, we need to develop many, many technologies, unquote, Mr. Ono said. That's from the article, Containing Fukushima is Beyond Current Technology? Worldwide Radiation is the Unspoken Consequence, by Washington's blog, posted April 8th. 
21 Wire has demonstrated how our original analysis of the apprehension of Jokar Charniev was indeed correct, that a police firing squad had tried to murder the unarmed suspect when he was discovered hiding under a tarp in a boat. The FBI, however, declined to discuss what prompted the mass gunfire by police. Moreover, Boston police have yet to explain how Jokar's throat became so badly lacerated as to end up in serious condition, hospitalized at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and left unable to speak for many weeks afterwards. Helicopter footage from the arrest appears to show the suspect climbing out from under a tarp in very good form, even though police insist he was bleeding all day from gunshot wounds sustained during his escape. Then there is the amazing, perfectly scripted confession note, photo above, said to have been written by Jokar at night and in the dark, under the tarp of a boat during the police standoff, neatly scribbled on the inside wall of the boat and adorned with perfect blood, dripping and even bullet holes coming through the words of a jihad polemic, including media favorites like Mujahideen, Koran, and Paradise. That was from the article, Five Key Questions That Were Not Asked During the Trial of Boston Bomber Jokar Tsarnyev by 21st Century Wire, posted April 9th. As Robert Perry explained, quote, Freedom House and the National Endowment for Democracy stress their commitment to freedom of thought and democracy, but both cooperated with a CIA-organized propaganda operation in the 1980s, according to documents released by Ronald Reagan's Presidential Library, unquote. NED has been connected countless times to activists, quote-unquote, in foreign countries who are opposing governments which do not submit to Washington. In a way, NED has replaced the CIA. On its About page, it states that after WW2, quote, U.S. policymakers resorted to covert means secretly sending advisors, equipment, and funds to support newspapers and parties under siege in Europe, when it was revealed in the late 1960s that some American PVOs were receiving covert funding from the CIA to wage the battle of ideas at international forums, the Johnson administration concluded that such funding should cease, recommending establishment of, quote, a public-private mechanism, unquote, to fund overseas activities openly. That was from the article, U.S. Propaganda 101, Illegally Invade Countries, Fund the Media, Call it Independent, by Julie Levesque, posted April 8th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
In public discourse, it is not uncommon for conservative economists and progressive economists to engage in heated debate about what constitutes responsible policy. One point on which they all seem to agree, however, is the need for economic growth in the long term. To paraphrase a quote from environmental essayist and author Edward Abbey, infinite growth on a finite planet is the ideology of the cancer cell. Yet, growth remains one of the fundamental pillars on which modern economics is built. An alternative vision is regaining prominence, however, rec recognizing the ecological limits to growth. This vision is of a so-called steady-state model, one that favors stability over growth. How viable is such a model in our modern technological society, and how could it conceivably be implemented? To talk to us about it, we are joined by James Magnus Johnston. James Magnus Johnston is a political economist and an instructor based at Winnipeg's Canadian Mennonite University. His focus is on ecological economics. He's interested in the political, cultural, and institutional shift towards ecological resilience, principally through the application of steady-state economic policies. He has a Master of Philosophy in Economics from Cambridge University. Johnston co-founded Fools and Horses Coffee Company in Winnipeg, Manitoba's first waste-free coffee shop. He's currently the Canadian director of the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy and a founding member of Transition Winnipeg's Initiating Committee. James Magnus Johnston also attained notoriety recently, having been listed in a CBC and Metro Winnipeg-sponsored initiative as among the top 40 Manitobans under 40, making an impact in their community. He joins us now in the CKUW studio here at the University of Winnipeg. Uh, welcome to our uh, program, James Magnus Johnston, and congratulations on your uh, achievements so far. Thanks very much. <laughs> Now, uh, looking at uh, this whole concept of economic growth, and uh, like my understanding is, you know, if we don't grow, you know, on uh, a regular basis, we are somehow worse off. And that seems a little counterintuitive in the sense that if I say, for example, have a farm and I'm producing enough crops to satisfy myself and maybe have a little left over, how is it that if I produce the same amount of crops – this year as they did last year, that I would be worse off. And yet that's what mainstream economists are telling us, that somehow we have to produce more and more and we have to consume more and more if our standard of living is going to survive. So I was wondering yeah. if you could uh, maybe uh, explain the, the, why that is. Yeah, well, that's, that's a, it sounds like a simple question. And I think one of the best answers is not so simple, um, but that has to do with the rate of interest. And in a debt-based economy, you have to keep up, you have to grow every year in order to pay for the interest on all of the debt, all the aggregate debt that exists in the economy. And uh, so one of the problems uh, in trying to transition to something more sustainable is, is uh, a debt-based money system that requires growth or bust. Okay. So... Like how far back – when when did we first start to embrace this uh, growth-based paradigm? I think the growth-based paradigm has been there, I mean, forever. We, sort of, we seem to have some kind of uh, built-in desire to – you know, we think of growth, we think of gardening, right? You sort of just did it there. Uh, we think of a, a flourishing garden or something along those lines. We think of, of you know, children and families and so on. So they're good – growth is an upward, you know, it has positive attachment in some respects. Um so it's it's always it's always been sort of an inherently desirable thing. Uh, of course, to say something like stable or steady state isn't exactly a it's not exactly a sexy term, right? You think of growth, you think of flourishing. Um, but 
I think things changed a little bit um, after World War II when we had to recover for, from something uh, miserable, something terrible. Um, and uh, growth delivered that. I mean, we were able to leverage, um, you know, the, the, the techniques of the Industrial Re Revolution to create, you know, a new way of life, cars, suburbs, um, all facilitated through with uh, fossil fuels. Um, and so one of the reasons, one of the, the best rationales for attempting to change now is to, is because we know that burning fossil fuels is bad for the planet. So, um, so now is, now is a great time to embrace something, something different. If the whole idea of ecological limits, I mean, I imagine if you go back 200 years when North America was mostly just frontier and wilderness, the whole idea of ecological limits is like, come on, that's like science fiction and we're never going to get there. Well, that's true in some respects. In others, uh, every major civilization has exceeded its com carrying capacity and collapsed at some point. Um, you know, uh, Ronald Wright, uh, who wrote um, A Short History of Progress, uh, has documented how, you know, in early Mesopotamia, Easter Island, um, Egypt, um, the Roman Empire, um, in all of these cases, uh, you know, societies were attempting to um, to continue growing at a point beyond uh, beyond what what their carrying capacity would allow them to, um, and you know there are theorists who would argue that we're facing the same constraints today. The difference, as you point out, though, is that there was always some place new to go. You go, you, you know, if, if, if you have some kind of social collapse, it doesn't matter because you can, you know, move to a neighboring territory and, and, and start uh, anew there. Uh, and now we don't, uh, you know, short of, you know, trying to colonize another planet, which people are entertaining, you know, now. Uh, but, uh, but we really don't have that luxury anymore. Yeah. It is true that when we – like if we were to – based on what you said originally about the, the interest-based uh, you know, uh, financial system we have, if we don't grow year by year, it does – I mean if we were politicians say, okay, we're going to stop growing or whatever, it's going to have negative impacts on, on the major social indicators. I mean that is yeah. true, right? Well, in some ways, yes. Um, in other ways um, – if we were to see a major financial downturn, it would look really bad in terms of GDP. There'd be no growth. We'd fall into a recession. You know, some people may lose their jobs. But on the other hand, um, Iceland uh, saw a major financial collapse. They saw, you know, heavy reductions in growth, and they're just doing—they're doing just fine. <laughs> uh, the the crisis of two thousand and eight. If we're measuring growth in terms of aggregate production and consumption, and a huge portion of that comes from, you know, the financialization of assets, as we know in 2008, you know, that's what happened. Um, you know, you see, you see, you know, mortgages skyrocket, you see asset prices like oil holdings, uh, you know, skyrocket. If those things shrink, it actually might be good for people. Um, as we saw with the oil price decline, uh, it might be good for a whole generation of millennials who can't afford houses. Uh, it might not look good in terms of GDP, but, um, you know, we're, we're essentially feeding a highly unequal, you know, inequitable uh, uh, economic arrangement right now anyway. Mm. And are not the, the roots of this that we, we were embracing these abstractions? I mean, you, you mentioned the 2008 credit crisis. Uh, instruments like derivatives don't have analogs in the natural world. It's, no. you, know, it's you know, mathematical, pure mathematics. Yeah, and you can invent... 
any number of fictions. Herman Daly, um, you know, who's associated with Cassie, and he, a prominent ecological economist, really inv- he invented the term steady state, really. Um, he calls uh, derivatives and other financial uh, assets like that, he calls them negative pigs uh, because they're, they're abstractions. And if we think about, um, if we were to think about in agricultural terms, we could think about, you know, growth in things that just, you know, that don't exist and cost people money. They're debt-based to begin with, right? So you're actually inventing, you know, some kind of, you know, negative uh, thing that people have to keep paying for. Um, so, uh, and, and we simply can't, we can't keep, paying for those, you know, inventions that you said have no real concrete uh, uh, analogs in the real world. It's impossible. So when we talk about economic growth colliding with ecological limits, what does that mean in, in real concrete terms? No, yeah, and that's interesting. Uh, one of the points of contention when you're trying to pick apart the assumptions of ecological economists, steady-state economists, um, is to question you know, why it is that, um, you know, or where, where those limits exist, right? Do those limits actually exist? When, when do we hit those limits? And um, Johan Rockström and his cohort at the Stockholm Resilience Center have attempted to measure the limits to growth in a way that, you know, uh, is a little bit more concrete. So they've identified nine planetary boundaries critical for life support functions, uh, the life support functions of the planet. And uh, one of them is climate change. Another is biodiversity loss. And it's interesting to see how much press climate change gets. But it's we, we do not hear about, for instance, biodiversity loss, which is arguably a far worse problem, right? Uh, and ocean acidification, which we know is somehow related to climate change, but it's yet another uh, planetary boundary that we seem to have exceeded. So if you measure growth in those terms, if we know that aggregate production and consumption leads to the degradation of the life support system, uh, then we know we've exceeded the limits to growth in, um, I believe it's three to five of those nine boundaries. Um, there are areas where they're trying to refine their methodology to understand exactly where those boundaries are. But we know it's climate change. We know ocean acidification, uh, interference with the nitrogen cycle, interference uh, like biodiversity loss, you know, on, we know that this is the Anthropocene, right? We're entering an age and we're, we're uh, killing off, uh, you know, uh, vast amounts of, of, of life on the planet. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I would. Uh, it's becoming more common to measure the limits to growth in those terms. So you mentioned climate change and uh, biodiversity loss and ocean acidification. How critical is it to tackle the economic growth paradigm in order to deal meaningfully with those blights? I think it's absolutely critical. I think you know. We talk about climate change denial. I mean, that's one thing. But to suggest that we can grow our way out of all of these problems, to me, is just insane. Um, I mean, and that's why I've spent so much time trying to figure out, you know, uh, you know, what some of these, what, how meaningful these ideas are put forward by steady-state economists. Because it's not, they're not exactly radical. They're not exactly re- revolutionary. What we're talking about is, you know, uh, is is just scaling down our. our uh, you know, our greed a little bit, right? We're talking about uh, simplifying our, li- uh, our lives uh, ever so slightly. And uh, these things seem to be very dangerous ideas today for some reason. Uh, of course, given the fact that the underlying assumption for how we arrange our economic affairs is to grow or bust. Mm. So what about things like uh, geolog- uh, geopolitical instability, you know, military violence and uh, wars and such. Do you see a a connection there with the economic growth paradigm? 
Well, I do because um, a lot of, I mean, if you go back to look at the history of the Westphalian nation-state system, I mean, much of it was was about, you know, conquering territories, colonies to extract resources for further production. And this is a relatively recent invention, right? Um, well, where is it happening today? Well, it's happening, I mean, you can reference conflicts in the Middle East, you can reference conflicts between Russia and Ukraine, where natural resource extraction, natural gas, oil development are some of the driving forces behind these conflicts. Um, why did, you know, the U.S. go into Iraq in the first place? I mean, they say it was for nuclear weapons. Of course it was, and it was to ensure, you know, that there was access to uh, the oil, that oil could get to market. Um, so, you know, if, if we're having such a hard time dealing with, uh, with um, any change that we have to sort of dig in our heels and ensure that we have access to fossil fuel wherever it might be. I mean, Canada's using the same rhetoric now, right? If, you know, we need to make sure that we can get oil to market and we're going to put a pipeline in and, and you know, uh, send it by rail. I mean, to me, this is sheer lunacy. If the, if the, uh, if the other alternative, the alternative is to uh, simply stop growing a little, you know, quite so much. <laughs> uh, it does require, though, some fundamental rethinking of how we are organize, like I said, you know, our financial system. We can't grow by at least the rate of interest forever. Uh, we can't have that kind of exponential growth. So we have to de-financialize our economy to some extent. Um, but it doesn't mean going back to the horse and cart. It means going back to a financial system that exist, pr- existed prior to 1971. Okay. Um, just to, uh, to to nail a couple, because I, I think it's a critical to get past the uh, false solutions. Mm-hmm. We hear about the green economy, you know, from, I guess, you know, leftish politicians and even some environmentalists, you mm-hmm. know, we're going to, you know, develop, uh, you know, alternatives to fossil fuels, windmills and solar panels and uh, renewables and, and all of that. What what, uh, what are your thoughts about this idea of, uh, you know, the way maybe addressing some of these concerns uh, through a green economy? Technological progress is very important, and that won't change in a steady. If you were to shift towards a steady state economy, you wouldn't see a big change. A steady state economy is still dynamic; it still changes. There's still trade, um, but um, we've been waiting for a technological fix for many years to these problems, and it hasn't materialized. Um, there's no single technology that will fix these problems. Um, you know, uh, the nice thing is that, of course, um, the energy return on energy investment for green technology is now competitive with unconventional crude. That is to say that we get as much energy out of um, solar panels, you know, windmills. Uh, now, uh, hydro is, is better um, than we do from unconventional crude, like the Alberta oil sands or tar sands. Um, so that's that's a good thing, right? Uh, but it does probably mean that we're not going to see very high rates of growth because we need uh, we need high quality fossil fuels to achieve those high rates of growth. What about the knowledge economy? We hear about uh, you know we can spend our services on apps and tutoring and things that don't seem obviously connected with a voracious uh, uh, assault on Mother Earth. Uh, I mean, is there a possibility that that could take up the slack uh, that, uh, you know, uh, more conventional forms of uh, industry and so on would be limited due to economic limits, ecological limits? Well, the the funny thing about that is that even a service economy requires high amounts of energy. And there are a couple of reasons why. One is, well, people working in a knowledge economy still have to eat, right? Um, That's a very simple sort of answer. Another one is, though, that it appears as though the service economy 
uh, sits atop what we call in ecological economics a trophic pyramid. So that is to say, you know, if you're to think about uh, the trophic pyramid in terms of um, life on the planet, you need sort of a level of bottom feeders and so on and so up, so on, so on and so on up the pyramid. Um, and it it seems to be uh, virtually the same in the economy. You always need some kind of large extractive base. Then you need some kind of uh, manufacturing in the middle. And on top, you're going to have services. But relative to the other two uh, areas of the economy, services is always always seems to be the smallest. Um, that may change from country to country. But if you look at it in the aggregate, which is what we do when we look at aggregate economic growth, um, services don't comprise a huge uh, portion of the global economy. It, it may grow ever so slightly, but there are likely limits and diminishing returns. And of course, that's why we saw a dot-com you know, bubble you know, uh, uh, shortly before and even after you know, the year 2000 uh, was because um, you know, we're not moving towards a knowledge economy. We, we are to some extent, but it, it, it must be limited by the laws of physics. So what would be involved in actually converting from the current system to a steady state economy? What, what are some of the, uh, the critical prerequisites, if you will, that would allow us to proceed without doing too much damage to uh, our lives? Well, now, this is where I like to sort of use the analogy of <laughs> Apollo 13. Uh, we all sort of know the movie. Um, Houston, we have a problem. Exactly, right? Um, you know, they're on this small ship, which they need to repair in order to make it back, in order to solve their problem, make it back to Earth. We're sort of facing a similar problem, right? We've got, we've got a damaged spaceship Earth right now, and we need to use relatively simple tools to fix the problem as soon as we can, Right. Um, and so that's again why I don't see I don't see technology fixing the problem. I see it as a cultural and behavioral sort of problem that we need to sort of keep ourselves in check um, and and you know keep economists in check and say, well, you know, wait, maybe that's not the right answer. I mean, we heard uh, Bowman a few months ago saying, well, if Winnipeg just reaches a population of a million, that'll change everything. And we're well, why? Why do we think that that's going to change everything and solve all of our problems? Usually, it's because of you know additional tax revenue. But um, but some of the but the the sort of so we need a simple fix to um, to deliver us from this crisis, and um, we've got. You know, on, on, on the steadystate.org website, we've got a list of 10 policies as a starting point. Um, the first one is uh, step away from, uh, from measuring GDP as the most important measure of, you know, our, of our economy. So start tackling things like social progress. Um, another one is allow for more flexibility in our, our working, uh, working week, uh, day, month, year. Um, you know, France does it, Germany does it, Scandinavian countries uh, have more flexible work, working arrangements, and it seems to work quite well. People's levels of happiness, you know, they go up, their lives improve. Um, and the theory goes that if you're making a little bit less, you'll probably consume a little bit less, and the research has generally shown that to be true. Um, a, uh, another one is, um, so we're, we're stepping away from GDP, um, we are reducing the amount that we work, um, and uh, another one that's become very popular these days is this idea of, of basic income, um, that you know pe people may decide to work a little bit less, produce and consume a little bit less, if they have a basic income, in which case they can, um, you know, 
they can do some of the other things that they find more meaningful in life, whether that's, you know, gardening, you know, uh, uh, joining a book club, I don't know, you know, but, but deriving utility from things that aren't materially intensive. Um, so the theory goes. So those are those are three examples of you know policies that will that will move us away from a growth-based paradigm very simply and very favorably. I don't think I I don't think um, I've ever heard anybody uh, listen to a policy prescription like that and go, oh, that sounds terrible. You know, that sounds scary. It sounds like we're going back to the horse and cart. No, it's just simplifying ever so slightly. Is there a maybe a, finally is there a specific example uh, you could point to of a, of a functioning steady state economy? Yes, um, of course, no model's perfect, but um, just to sort of uh, maybe uh, allow folks to kind of do their own research. Um, one example is Costa Rica. Um, their energy use is very very low. Their fossil fuel use is very very low. They do, however, thrive now on a tourism economy, but their social uh, indi- indicators are quite high, and they've been improving right um, over the last decade. So Costa Rica is an example of, you know, something that's getting in in the ballpark of a steady state economy. Okay. Well, James Magnus Johnston, I want to thank you very much for coming in and sharing these uh, very provocative and uh, profound ideas with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with James Magnus Johnston, a political economist and instructor at CMU and the Canadian director of the Centre for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Coming up... A feature interview by San Francisco Bay Area journalist and new Global Research NewsHour contributor, Kelia Ramirez-Watson. Janelle Orsi is a co-founder and the executive director of the Sustainable Economies Law Center in the San Francisco Bay Area. She was profiled by the American Bar Association in 2010 as a legal rebel, an attorney who is, quote, remaking the legal profession through the power of innovation, unquote. She was named a 2014 Ashoka Fellow. Ashoka Fellows, quote, are leading social entrepreneurs who have innovative solutions to social problems and a potential to change patterns across society. Ashoka Fellows work in over 70 countries around the globe in every area of human need, unquote. I'm Kelly Ramaris Watson. I began my interview by asking Janelle how she discovered sharing law. Sharing law, I guess it was a phrase I put together in my head when I was a third year in law school. And at the time I was living in Berkeley in what we called casual co-housing. So it was four households that lived adjacent to one another and that shared a lot of things. We shared laundry, we shared a garden, we shared meals a couple days a week. We shared a vacuum cleaner and just sharing kept coming up in my life as a way that made my life easier. It helped me save money. It was cutting down on my impact on the planet. And so I started to think about just all of the people who are struggling to meet their needs in the society and the way that sharing, if we just take it to greater levels, could really do a lot of good. So I thought I could become a lawyer who helps people share things because there are a lot of agreements that need to be made a lot of regulations that need to be navigated, and I decided to focus my whole law practice on sharing. 
Then I was also watching things around me in the Bay Area. Like I got to know People's Grocery, the nonprofit in West Oakland that was creating community gardens and was also working to create a worker-owned grocery store at the time. And these ideas just made so much sense to me and particularly in helping to meet the needs of young people in this society to help meet their food and nutrition needs, the needs for jobs. So I was just seeing examples all around me in ways that sharing was benefiting a lot of people. Any other ways you would describe sharing law? Sharing law. It's a field of legal practice, and I sometimes refer to it as sharing economy law. Sometimes I call it community resilience law. Sometimes people call it sustainable economies law because my nonprofit is Sustainable Economies Law Center. But basically, it's a field of law practice through which lawyers and other legal professionals provide support to people in forming organizations and forming agreements to share things. So drafting agreements, drafting bylaws for cooperatives, helping people choose and structure collaborative entities, helping people understand how their sharing arrangements could bring up employment law, tax law, securities law, health and safety laws, and a lot of regulations come up, and I, I didn't even expect this when I became a sharing lawyer, but we have so many laws that are designed to protect people from one another, and sharing is people helping each other out, and there are actually laws that prevent people from helping each other out. So there's a lot to learn and think about. Where do you think that regulations most harm attempts to share? Regulations that have been designed to temper the harms of really large companies have also had the perverse effect of privileging those really large companies. So companies that have a lot of money, for example, to register securities offerings to raise money and capitalize their businesses are also the businesses that succeed because they have access to capital. But let's say someone is starting a new farm and they need to raise a little bit of money to get a a tractor and to lease some farmland. Maybe they want to raise $50,000. They can't just advertise to their community that they want maybe 50 microloans of $1,000. You can't do that without a substantial amount of legal compliance. And so it means the small-scale economic activities just can't even compete with the large ones because they can't comply with the same laws that were designed for the big ones. There's some changes going on, not only here, but in Europe as well, about crowdfunding for small firms. you think that's going to take off in the U.S. anytime soon? I do. And part of the reason why I think it's going to take off is because the Sustainable Economies Law Center, our organization, just wrote a law that we are shopping around to legislators in California. We have at least two legislators who are interested. And I think we're going to call it the Local Economy Securities Act. But one thing it does is reduces barriers for farmers to raise money to purchase farmland. It also just reduces barriers to a wide variety of things that we think create more sustainable local economies like solar energy projects, community-supported agriculture programs, worker-owned cooperatives. And so... If this law is passed in California, it means that projects that are relatively low-risk investments but high impact for community resilience will be able to get the capital they need to get started. What else does the SELC do? We have 10 different programs. So we kind of hit all realms of life. We work on energy, housing, food. A major goal of ours is to think about the legal profession itself and what lawyers do and how they practice 
and get lawyers all over the world trained to tailor their services to the creation of more sustainable local economies. You wrote this book called Practicing Law and the Sharing Economy. Are you one of the leaders or the founders of this as a legal discipline? One thing that I've done is I think I've brought together a lot of legal practice areas under one umbrella of sharing economy law or community resilience law, because there are definitely lawyers everywhere who have provided legal support to cooperatives in every state. I shouldn't say there are many lawyers, but there are lawyers because there have been cooperatives around you know, since the 19th century. But there are also lawyers who have created co-housing communities, lawyers who have provided support to nonprofit community farms. But the lawyers who do this work hadn't actually identified themselves as part of a movement or part of a area of focus. And so I think that my work has really helped to bring that together under one umbrella. And then the book was published by the American Bar Association. And a lot of lawyers around the country and actually around the world have reached out and said that they found the book and it really spoke to them as something that they had sort of in the back of their mind been wanting to do, or it helped to communicate what they were trying to communicate about their priorities. And so it's, it's helping to create a community of lawyers internationally. You said in a video that I saw that 70% of Americans are not being adequately served by the legal profession. Could you elaborate on that? Well, most people think of lawyers as being very expensive. And lawyers do charge anywhere from 200 to $500 an hour, even $600 an hour. A friend of mine told me that's what his law firm charges for his time. So lawyers have made themselves inaccessible to anybody, but maybe the top 10 or 20% of society. There are nonprofit legal service organizations that are meeting some of the needs of some of the lowest income members of society. But even those organizations say that they have to turn away pretty much, I think, four out of five of the requests for legal services. So it leaves a huge gap in the middle between the wealthiest and the poorest members of society of people who have day-to-day legal needs, needing support for family law, for buying or renting their homes for creating wills or trusts, for starting their own businesses. There are a lot of just aspects of life that require a little bit of legal expertise from time to time, and people just don't think about hiring a lawyer because they can't even imagine affording it. So lawyers have really elevated themselves to this place in society where they have made themselves inaccessible to the vast majority of people. And it has really benefited lawyers to do this for a long time because the wealthiest sector of society has had enough work to keep lawyers busy. And I think that bubble has now begun to burst. And there are a lot of unemployed lawyers who should be shifting the focus to serving more average members of society to do average legal work. The transactional lawyers might be that would be needed for the sharing economy. Transactional lawyers, as opposed to litigators who go to court, transactional lawyers are the people who draft contracts and form organizations and just advise people on, here are your steps to complying with the law. We need tons of transactional lawyers to help people do this because we have to create a whole new economy. I think we need to create a whole new economy. We need to replace all of the giant businesses that are destroying our planet. We need to replace them with community-managed, localized, sustainable businesses, and we need tons of lawyers to help people set those businesses up. But also, as you said in that video, law school does not prepare you to practice on your own, and I'm sure that there aren't yet courses in 
sharing law in a lot of places. So how does a lawyer get started with that? Well, one thing that I like to make sure that the whole world knows is in four states, California included, you can become a lawyer without going to law school. So there are four staff members in my organization who are apprenticing either with me or another attorney to become lawyers. And so they're learning this work on the ground by just basically learning it in practice. For people who have already become lawyers, I think the, the best thing to do is to just start taking clients and looking at what's already out there and how lawyers have assisted in the development of cooperatives and other you know, new economy enterprises and, and try to replicate those models. But as far as what law schools are doing, there's a little bit of change happening here and there. There are transactional community economic development law clinics at maybe 20 or 30 different law schools that are starting to think more progressively, thinking more along the lines of supporting community scale economic projects. And so that's a step in the right direction. But overall, legal education hasn't changed quickly enough to keep up with the needs of our society. New York has the apprentice program, although you do need one year of law school. There are actually three other states, Washington, Virginia, and Vermont. Those three states, you don't need to go to law school at all. And then Maine, you have to go to law school for two years and you can apprentice for the rest. So I think that basically accounts for the states where you can do it. And my organization has a blog called likelincoln.org, and we started a Facebook group called Apprenticing to Become a Lawyer. So now we're being contacted by people in other states, like Oregon, Ohio, and Florida, who said, oh, I wish I could do this in my state. How could I lobby legislators or the Supreme Court to change this and make this a viable pathway to becoming a lawyer? Because the other problem in the legal profession right now is that lawyers are graduating law school with $200,000 of debt and they can't find jobs. And it's just not an, an economically smart decision to go to law school anymore. We still need lawyers. Yeah. So. Are there enough sharing lawyers in the formal sense that they recognize this as a legal discipline to have your own professional organization like the trial lawyers, you have your own convention? I think there's just about to be enough lawyers doing this work. Our organization is creating a website. We call it nextlegal.org, a platform for creating the next legal profession. And it's not launched yet, but we're hoping that will create an organization of sorts. It's really a community building and resource sharing website. But also our organization has a fellowship program and we've helped mentor 11 attorneys as they've been starting their law practices in this realm. And a bunch of them got together and have formed an organization. I think they call it the Sustainable Economies Lawyer Association, something like that. And so I think this is going to start emerging. I think lawyers are going to realize they need to come together and learn from one another. Also, Australia has a sharing lawyer association that's in formation. Is the U.S. a leader in sharing law or other countries more ahead of us in that way? And which ones? Australia has definitely picked it up. I took a speaking tour through three, three cities in Australia last year and made a lot of connections. And I think that helped to spark the creation of an organization there. I don't see really a unified movement elsewhere, such as Europe or South America, but I hear from attorneys there that they are interested in these things. And of course, both Europe and South America are places where I see a lot of examples of great things happening, especially in the realm of worker-owned cooperatives. And so there must be lawyers who have come together and created best practices around that. Specifically, what areas of life could we be sharing more but for 
current law? We could be sharing more in the realm of food were it not for a lot of health and safety and agricultural laws that prevent us from doing so. A really disturbing example right now is that there are seed sharing libraries throughout the U.S. There's at least 300 of them. There are places where people can go and get free seed to grow vegetables and other plants. And then they're encouraged to harvest seeds later on and then donate seeds back to the library. And at least three or maybe four states now, the departments of agriculture have said, no, you can't do this. This violates seed labeling laws, laws that say you have to test the seeds that you're providing to people and label them with the testing information. So seed libraries can't comply with this. In the realm of food, when people come together and create formal arrangements to share food or they go out into the community and donate food, like Food Not Bombs goes into the community and gives food out to people, they're often cracked down upon due to health and safety laws. And they're just so restrictive that it's it's going to basically force a lot of people to go hungry if we don't create exemptions for community-scale food sharing. And uh, it's also very hard if you grow food in your backyard to find out how to comply with the laws in order to sell that food. I guess another area of law that that is just going to prevent the localization of our economic system is zoning laws, because zoning laws have divided up our cities and divided up the function of our lives to be separate from each other. So we live in a residential zone and we might work in an industrial zone. We go shopping in a commercial zone. Our food comes from an agricultural zone, and these could all be very separate from each other. But if you want to relocalize economies, you want to create the ability to grow food in our neighborhoods and do small-scale, cottage-scale manufacturing and to trade and exchange with neighbors. And that brings residential, industrial, agricultural all back into our neighborhoods, which violates zoning laws. And so we really have to rethink that whole framework for urban design. the gender breakdown among attorneys work out? Do women find themselves more interested in sharing law than men? Do you feel that it's fairly equal? Uh, what have you seen in your experience? Sometimes I wonder if our sample size is too small, but it's been a lot of women attracted to volunteer in our organization, and our fellows are mostly women. But it's it's definitely the case that men have been emerging and been involved and been very interested in doing this work. Of course, the majority of lawyers in our society are men, though increasingly law schools are seeing more women. And in some cases, I think the majority of many law school classes are now women. So I'm hoping that'll bring greater balance. But yeah, I haven't, other than that, I, I don't know if I've noticed any trends so far. So what do you think is the impact of the sharing economy on the environment? I think it's inevitably going to reduce consumption if by sharing economy you mean people are actually sharing tangible goods, providing for one another locally, I think probably one of the greatest impact things that we could do is share housing because the way that we have built the majority of housing infrastructure in, in this country, at least, is around single-family units. Every household needs to have their own kitchen and need to have their own living areas. And I think co-housing has helped to 
create new models that give people less personal space, but a much, much more shared space, but overall takes up less land mass and encourages people to provide for one another more and share and share tangible goods that each household might otherwise have to buy, like equipment, vacuum cleaners, and so on. So I think shared housing or uh, just much more community-oriented living will really reduce our consumption a good deal. Sharing transportation is another realm. You know, the, the phrase sharing economy has been picked up and applied to a lot of things that don't even necessarily reduce our consumption. They might even do the opposite. So Uber and Lyft are companies that enable people to get rides with strangers who are in effect operating taxis in their private vehicles. And so in some ways, this could be leading people to take more car trips rather than fewer because it's possible that they're ordering a Lyft vehicle or an Uber vehicle when they'd otherwise take a shuttle or a bus or a train or bicycle. But the power that could come from such technology and such practices is if people who are driving their car someplace are able to use an app to find other people who need to go to and from the same place. And in that way, we fill the empty seats in our cars and that and the cars are one of the, the biggest culprits in climate change. And so that'll make a huge difference when people really start to practice ride sharing, car sharing. So we're going to have, with more sharing, less need for duplicative things. What's the impact of that, though, on the vaunted job creation? Mm. I think it just means that people are going to be doing jobs and creating things that we actually need, such as solar panels and organic food and buildings built out of renewable materials. And there's there's a lot of labor that's going to be needed in order to create a more sustainable world. So I, I don't think we should worry that there's not going to be work for people to do. I think we should be worried that people are, are not getting out of jobs in these destructive industries fast enough. But everybody who works in coal industry or fracking and all of these things, of course, create jobs. But they're going to destroy the planet for all of our children and grandchildren. And gosh, there's a lot of work to do in renewable energy. So we shouldn't let the whole job issue hold us back from doing any of this. But yeah, it's definitely a sensitive issue because it does mean people's lives will be upset, at least during the transition. Do you see the sharing economy and sharing law as a way we can transition to a moneyless society where economics is based on fulfilling needs rather than making money? You know, the derivatives market is seven to ten times the value of the world's real goods and services, and I think that's a problem. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I think sharing is going to basically enable us to feel a greater sense of confidence that our needs are going to be met. And I think it's not that we need money. It's that we need the assurance that our basic needs are going to be provided for. And there are many other ways to do that beyond simply uh, working a job and earning money to buy everything we need. And so a lot of our needs can increasingly be met through the gift economy. And by the gift economy, I mean, you know, people borrowing and lending things from each other, sharing ownership of things, all of that will replace a lot of the things we do currently spend money on. And then there will also be ways to recognize people's contribution and help them, in a sense, bank their contributions in order to provide for themselves in the future. I think what a lot of people are worried about is we need to save money because we're going to grow old and at some point we won't be able to work and we're going to need to have savings to provide for ourselves but I think society can figure this out. We can come up with ways to ensure that people will be provided for in the times of their lives when they can't 
make as much of a productive contribution through time banking, for example, you know, people can accumulate time dollars or time time credits for the the work they do or the favors they do for others, and that they can later on benefit from by receiving favors from others. I'm a little concerned about that because exactly favors are gifts, and then this time banking turns it into an economic transaction where Mm -hmm. I might want to go ahead and give you something just because you're my friend. It makes time a different currency, but it's still this exchange model. It's true. You know, I, I think there have been many opportunities for me to participate in the time bank or to get time credits locally here for things for things that I've done. But I haven't felt the need to because, again, we all have a natural instinct to provide for one another, to provide gifts for one another. But I think there are some things that people won't do as gifts or they won't be as motivated to do them. I think maybe one example where time banks could ultimately succeed is in elder care and other caring professions because it can be very labor-intensive, time-consuming, and not always the most pleasant work, but eventually all of us are going to need it in some form, whether it's for ourselves or for family members. And in Japan, I think their system, their time bank for elder care has been more successful than other time banks, and I think that particular realm is where it'll be useful. Have you run into the argument that somehow this idea of sharing economy and sharing law and co-housing and things like that is a limit to people's freedom. That freedom is doing it yourself, by yourself, for yourself, and the sharing business is just a bunch of pinko communism. I think in many ways it's going to give us more freedom because right now we're so many people are just slaves to this demand that we earn money and slaves to our nine to five jobs. And I think most people just aren't free to begin with. There's something in sharing that intimidates people, especially people who feel that they need to have control over their personal space, over their time, especially introverts. Do you think that measurements other than GDP will help uh, develop the sharing economy? Yes. And... The measurements can serve multiple functions, and one of them, I guess, is to help us prioritize the use of our resources. But I think in general, we need to recognize the value in different types of business models. So recognize what is a worker-owned business and what are the benefits that it's providing to the workers and to the local community. And if we're able to recognize that and measure it, then we as a society can provide benefits to such businesses to encourage their growth. Because right now, many worker cooperatives struggle to get off the ground. But if we were able to see the many benefits they provide, it would enable us to prioritize them. I think another measure is just to know the economic impact of local spending. And so if I spend a dollar in my local economy, it's much more likely to be respent in my local economy. It's kind of like a pinball machine. I like to use that metaphor, which is in a pinball machine, a ball goes in and it bounces around. And each time it bounces off of something, your points are going up. And that's like a dollar in the local economy. So if we could measure the value of spending a dollar at a locally owned worker owned business versus spending a dollar at a Walmart or a big box store and recognize that that dollar at that local business is going to be worth maybe even five times as much as the other dollar to our local economy. Having those types of measurements 
will help us prioritize the economic development funds that we use, the regulations we impose on businesses, and so much more. We can calibrate our legal system to prioritize what actually benefits us. What's being done politically in the United States or elsewhere to promote more sharing? You already talked about your organization's attempt to have a law introduced in California. What else is going on? There are a handful of cities where the city government has recognized sharing as a priority. Uh, Seoul and South Korea is one of them. San Francisco is one of them. San Francisco's mayor created a sharing economy working group. I can't name all the other cities, but I think cities in general are revisiting their policies and revisiting their funding priorities and thinking about sharing in its many forms. Some cities are thinking, how can we prioritize worker-owned businesses? Other cities are thinking about shared transportation. Different cities are looking at different pieces of the sharing economy, but all with the recognition that it's going to benefit us locally. Anything else? I focus a lot of my energy on cooperatives and especially worker-owned cooperatives. And I think that is a piece of the sharing economy that a lot of people have not wrapped their minds around yet or don't really see what is the value, what is the potential impact. But the two things people should really know about worker-owned cooperatives is that they're democratically governed, meaning workers control their work environment and their jobs, and they distribute their earnings to workers on the basis of the value of the work they do. So they're not people who are working to earn profits and limitless profits for others. There are people who are working basically to benefit themselves. And that's going to really change the flow of wealth in our society. We have such enormous wealth inequality right now. Worker cooperatives are a thing that have enormous power to shift that. And I think we really need to grow cooperative literacy in society so that everybody graduating from high school understands what a worker cooperative is and can say what a worker cooperative is and would aspire to work in a worker cooperative because if the opportunity is there, I think everybody should want to have control over their work and, and not just go let somebody else capitalize off of their labor. So worker cooperatives might be the moral to many stories in the sharing economy. You have been listening to California attorney Janelle Orsi, executive director of the Sustainable Economies Law Center. The center's website is www.theselc.org. That's www.theselc.org. I'm Kelly Ramirez Watson in Berkeley, California. You can find more of Kellya Ramirez Watson's articles and podcasts on her site, www.patreon.com slash Kellya. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.